Good morning, Christian Lehman Church, family, friends. <clears throat> well, today, of all days, we wanted to keep the main thing the main thing. So we wanted to share with you the story of what happened to Jesus. Now, the story of Jesus is the greatest story. It is the ultimate story. And so uh, his big story gives life and hope to our smaller ones. So today, we'd like to walk you through the death and the resurrection of Christ. We'd like to do this using our own words. Now, today, we have four, count them up, four different presenters. And each person it will tell you one part of the story of Jesus and then reflect on what that means to them personally. Okay, so four different presenters, one unified story. Now, with each personal reflection, we're pretty much saying the same thing, which is that when Jesus died, we died too. And when Jesus rose, we rose too. His story gives life and hope and joy to our smaller ones. So again, today we're keeping the main thing, the main thing. We want to tell you the story of Jesus, and then we want to show you how that story has shaped each one of our lives. And so we continue in this story as Pilate presents Jesus before an angry crowd saying, Behold the man. And here we go. Our story today begins at the height of the drama, based on Mark 15, verses 12 to 20. Pilate, standing before a crowd presenting Jesus, was unsure what to do with him, asking the crowd, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And in a fit of rage, the crowd shouted, Crucify him! Pilate pleaded again, almost with compassion in his voice. But, but why? What has he done wrong? What crime has he committed? I, I haven't found anything that would demand death. But he was quickly drowned out by the shouts and screams of the bloodthirsty mob, roaring louder and louder. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! The crowd was going crazy, their voices rising in hostility. Their demand that Jesus be crucified was unstoppable and unrelenting. And the governor, made powerless, backed into a corner, had no other choice but to give in. At Pilate's command, Jesus was flogged with a leather-tipped whip over and over again his skin ripped open, his back dripping with blood after each lash that struck his body. Again, and again, and again. Enough for him to feel the cruel bite of torture, but not enough to feel the sick mercy of death. And as Jesus was led away to be crucified, they brought him into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And there was Jesus in the middle of it all, standing silent, without resistance, surrounded by those who wanted him dead, but who he ultimately came to die for. 
and they began to strip him of any clothes he was wearing, as if they didn't do enough to strip him of his dignity already. And they thought it would be so clever to put a purple robe on him, purple, the color reserved for royalty, for this supposed king, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and forced it upon his head until it pierced his skin, causing blood to run down his face. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and taunted him, shouting, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And then they started to spit on him, and they took the staff and struck him on the head over and over again. Each blow felt throughout his entire body. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his blood-soaked clothes back on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. As I was reading this shocking story of Jesus' treatment after his arrest, I wondered what some of you were thinking as you heard this dramatic reading of that event. I imagined there likely was a mixed bag of emotions. This may possibly be your first time hearing the gory details. But for others, we are very familiar with the story, which is often told every Easter. Whatever the case may be, I have a sneaking suspicion many of us don't really care. It just doesn't move our emotional needles or touch us personally enough. Either we are desensitized to the violence, or we cover our eyes and ears to disconnect. Whoa, isn't that a bit harsh to say? Maybe, but I include myself in that group that sometimes takes for granted what Jesus went through on behalf of myself. Even the Roman governor Pontius Pilate said as much when he asked the crowd, what has he done wrong? What crime has he committed? I haven't found anything that would demand death. For that reason alone, it's good for me to be reminded of the tremendous price that Jesus paid for me. The cost was not merely the death penalty, but also the horrific, prolonged torture and public humiliation that Jesus endured without any objections to the unfairness. Where, where if it was me, I would be kicking and screaming in protest. Jesus literally put his skin in the game, or loss of actual skin to be more accurate. Jesus was proving to me how much he loved me, that he would go through all that suffering for my sake. Like most things that are precious, the gift of salvation did not come cheap. Certain words or images trigger past memories in each one of us. Traumatic flashbacks often pop up when those buttons are pushed. For example, have you ever been stabbed by thorns? Pretty painful, right? In this story, the soldiers mocked Jesus, stripped him of his clothes, and even spat on him. But what made me cringe was a crown of thorns forcefully being pressed into Jesus' head, causing him to bleed profusely. I wince because I have personalized the thorns. Let me explain. Thorns remind me of an incident when my own daughter, as a toddler, tripped and fell headfirst into a thorny rose bush. I will never forget that image of her face and head embedded with multiple sharp broken thorns. Shivers come over me just thinking about it. 
Another memorable encounter with thorns happened exactly two years ago when I was in Israel touring the Holy Land. While walking in the Garden of Gethsemane, some trees caught my eye. When I looked closer, I saw branches with sharp needle-like thorns, which you all saw captured in my photo earlier. Our guide explained to us these same kinds of branches were used to make the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head. As I gazed at those thorns in real time, I became emotionally tender and teared up. At the thought of our precious Lord Jesus in excruciating anguish as his forehead pierced and cut open. At that defining moment in the garden, I profoundly understood Jesus' amazing love for me to suffer as my substitute. Easter is a much-needed annual reminder that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For me to respond appropriately with great gratitude for Jesus, I must, for His sake, make what He did personal to me because Jesus indeed made my sake personal to Him. His story is my story. Our story is His story. Amen. The Day God Died, based on Mark chapter 15. The soldiers laid the cross on Jesus' shoulders, but his broken body could not bear it. As he stumbled under its weight and struggled to move another step, they realized this was taking too long. So they searched the crowd for a strong man to carry the cross for him and found a man named Simon of Cyrene. Just like that, they continued on. And they kept going until they reached the top of the hill, a place called Golgotha, meaning place of the skull. Simon lowered the cross to the ground and it began. The soldiers pressed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, metal nails hammered into flesh. And as they hoisted the Son of God into the air, they bent down to cast lots to compete for his clothing. They hung him up to die, a spectacle on display. His back shredded from the whipping, grated against the cross, as he struggled to breathe. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified my Lord. The people passing by hurled vile insults, wagging their heads in mockery, saying, wow, you don't look so holy now. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Yeah, good luck with that, buddy. Why don't you start now by coming down from that cross? The chief priests and the teachers of religious law also joined in mocking Jesus. This man is quite the savior, isn't he? They scoffed. Going around saving other people when he can't save himself. Oh, Messiah. Oh, King of Israel, why don't you push those nails out of your hands, jump down from the cross, and I will be the first to bow my knee before you, oh, mighty Savior. Even the men 
who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. But despite all of this, Jesus didn't hurl curses or spew venom in response. He looked upon them with compassion and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. From noon until three, darkness covered the land. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross like the criminal to his left or the criminal to his right. Jesus was not an ordinary human being, and Jesus did not die an ordinary death. Jesus was God. And so on this day, in this moment, on a hill in Israel, God died. And during that moment on the cross, as Jesus was... Gasping for breath, there was a supernatural cosmic phenomenon. The scriptures say that he became sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. At that moment, wrote Martin Luther, Jesus became the most grotesque, ugly, hideous thing in the history of all creation. And so Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it and began to lift it up to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said three words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and breathed his last breath and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in Two, from top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split, and tombs broke open. And when this centurion who was right there saw that everything that happened, saw the earthquake, and they were all terrified, and he exclaimed, surely this was the man of God, the son of God. Okay. (laughs) Now, when um, people hear that Jesus, God's son, came to earth to die, the first question they ask is, why? Why? Now, there are many reasons why. You know, I, I I could just rattle one reason after the other. But I would say the very first reason at least for the Apostle Paul, it came out the very first reason was he died for our sins. It's what what Paul said. And the simplest way to explain why Jesus died, he died for our sins according to scripture. Sins, uh, that means your sin and that means my sin. Um, Now, the first time I heard that Jesus died for our sins, I was a teenager. 
And I remember thinking, okay, I get it how other people have sins. I get it how this world has a lot of sins, but I don't have that much sin. I mean, I get it how other people need a savior and I, they need a savior, I get it, but I don't think I really need one. Now, that's what I thought. You know, I was thinking that, you know, I'm not a drug dealer. I was a 4.0 student and I was much, much nicer than my brother. So when I heard that Jesus died for my sins, I was like, yeah, other people have a lot of sins, but I am fine. I'm fine. I don't need a savior. Now, that's how I felt back then. But as I look back, that was not completely true. I, I wasn't fine. Uh, when I was a young man, I disrespected my parents. I, I cheated in school. I was rebellious. Uh, one time when I was age 15, and um, please don't tell anyone this, and, and kids, do not try this at home. But I took my brother's car for a joyride. My brother at the time was a mechanic. And so he fixed up this car, a Datsun 210, but it really wouldn't start unless you popped open the hood and connected a few wires. So I snuck out at night, age 15, drove this Datsun 210. I picked up my friend and I drove downtown. Now, as we hit Ignacio Valley Road, I'm not kidding you. I'm driving in the car. My buddy's right up my side. I saw a flash of lights behind me. It was the police. So <laughs> I quickly pulled over. And then the cop got out of his car and walked up to mine and said, son, your lights are not on. And I was like, sorry, officer. But here's the thing. I didn't know how to turn the lights on and my friend didn't either. And so I'm just like, I, I started to flick a few switches and I got lucky and the lights came on. And the policeman said, could I see your ID? And I, I, I showed him my brother's license. He gave me a warning. And as the police were watching, I tried to start the car. But then I remembered that the car doesn't start unless I pop open the hood and connect a few wires. So I popped open the hood, connected a few wires, dropped the hood, smiled at the police, and drove off. Now, many of you are shocked at my story. You're thinking, Pastor Andrew, I always thought that you would have been like a good, clean kid. And perhaps the most shocking part of my story is that even though I did this, even though I did stuff like this, like drove a car I couldn't drive, committed fraud to the police, endangered my friend, and I could have killed someone, even though I did stuff like this, I thought I was a good, clean person. I thought, yeah, but I'm no drug dealer. And plus, I'm a 4.0 student. I was blind to my own sin. I was blind to my own sin. Not only was I a sinner, but I was a sinner in denial. So what happened to me? Well, as I, I grew older, I, I started to read the Bible more. 
And as I started to read the Bible more, the Holy Spirit would convict me. And as the Spirit would convict me, I realized that the story I told you is just the tip of the iceberg. That the sin inside me is far deeper, far deeper than anyone knows. God has just made me more aware. And I see it now. I see it. It's in my thoughts and my desires and my selfishness and my greed. I could go on and on and on. When I first became a Christian, I thought I had a mound of sin, barely manageable, but a mound of sin. And believe me, 30 years later, I know it is no mound. It is a mountain of sin. The Bible reveals that the wages of sin is spiritual death, that the punishment of sin is the wrath of God. And somewhere deep inside me, I finally understood I am accountable to God for all of my sins. And I had a lot of sins to be accountable for. So why did Jesus die on that cross? Because on the cross, a beautiful exchange took place. The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that on the cross, all of my sin, the mountain of sin, all of your sin, all of our rebellion and brokenness went on to Jesus And at that moment, Jesus became the most hideous, grotesque, ugly thing in all of the universe. And at that moment, all of Jesus' perfect, beautiful righteousness came onto us. It was a beautiful exchange. He took the wrath of God in our place so that we could be forgiven and free. So why did Jesus die on that cross? Well, he died for your sins, and he died for mine. You know why? Because we desperately, desperately needed a Savior. And Jesus Christ is the Savior. The Day of Discouragement and Despair, based on John 19 and Mark 15. It was Friday evening, and the Sabbath was fast approaching. The Jews didn't want the bloody display of the crosses hanging there during their Passover holy day, so they asked the soldiers to hasten the death of those being crucified. A soldier approached the first two crucified men armed with a heavy weapon. The sound of metal crunching bone and the screams of agony would fill the ears of all who stood nearby. Then the soldier approached Jesus on the cross, ready to do the same. But to his surprise, he found that Jesus was already dead. Normally, crucifixion would take many hours for a person to die. It could even go on for days. So instead of swinging his hammer, the soldier grabbed his spear, and to the horror of the loved ones who were standing nearby, he stabbed Jesus in the side. Blood and water poured out from Jesus' side but Jesus remained lifeless. The soldier, convinced that Jesus was dead, moved on. This was to fulfill scripture, which said that not a single bone of his holy one would be broken. There was a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council that arrested Jesus. 
He didn't agree with what they did, but he may not have openly protested. The Gospel of John calls him a secret follower of Jesus. But now in open defiance of his peers, in the face of gross injustice, he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus and had it wrapped in expensive linen. I wonder what it was like for Joseph of Arimathea to bind the dead body of Jesus. What raced through his mind while doing so? Perhaps he was filled with guilt for not speaking out against the council, or perhaps he was filled with despair. In Jesus, he saw the hope of Israel, and now that hope was cold and lifeless, slumped before him. He had the body of Jesus placed in a rich person's tomb. Undoubtedly, Joseph must have originally purchased it for himself, but today he could see no better use for it. With help, Joseph rolled a large stone to the entrance. Mary Magdalene was also there to see where they put him. The tomb was sealed and the Sabbath was fast approaching. I wonder what the next day, Saturday, must have been like. People often say that for the loved ones who carry on, the grieving doesn't truly start until after the burial, until the adrenaline wears off and you return home. And then waking up in the morning, wishing it was all just a bad dream, you taste the bitter aftertaste of true lament. And on this Sabbath day with no work to distract yourself by, you are stuck with a harsh and hopeless reality. Jesus, the Messiah, the hope of the world is dead. Church, I remember one of the first times I knelt down and prayed out of desperation. I was in high school and in the middle of one school night, I was awakened to my panicked mom. She received a call from her brother, my uncle, who while on the phone told her that he might be experiencing a heart attack right then and there. I heard the frantic scramble of my mom waking up my dad to drive to the hospital in Daly City. So they drove off and I was alone in my room and I was scared. Uh, So I knelt beside my bed. I rested my elbows on the sheets and folded my hands together and started praying. God, please protect Uncle Daniel. Please keep him alive. Uh, I was weeping as I tried to muster up my memories of him. Uncle Dan did not end up making it. Mom did not make it to him in time either. All I remember was one of the following days, I sat next to my mom on her bed and we both cried. I hugged her and she hugged me back. There are more tears than words, but really that was what we needed. Now, uh, CLC, I am very aware that at this point of the Easter story, we are so close to the climax, the Resurrection Sunday. And believe me, I want to get there very fast. But before we get to Sunday, we do must acknowledge the reality of Saturday. That reality is dealing with death. So in these next few minutes, I do want to hold space for those of us who seem to be stuck in a perpetual Saturday. Because friends, it's been, it feels like we've been in a season of Saturday. It's when day after day, we experience the deep anguish that comes when we continue to witness more violence, evil, death of our friends and family and communities 
not knowing when it will end. And so, and I observed this, this image that we see um, of Joseph, of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, Jesus' closest friends that were there on that Saturday. We noticed the emotions on their faces, the despair, the grief, the anger at this unjust death. Keep in mind, they did not know that Sunday was coming. Jesus was dead. So what could they do? Who did they have? Who did they have if not for one another? To remember their dear friend, to grieve together, to process and to hold one another in response to their suffering. Friends, I I wonder what it would look like for us to enter in to the fellowship of suffering in community. For those of us finding ourselves stuck in a season of Saturday, may we not go through it alone. May we give ourselves permission to take up space to express our grief, our anger with others. Perhaps our job is actually to wait, to wait and expect someone to join us here in our grief today. Which leads me to those who have made it to Sunday. I believe there's an invitation for those of us who find ourselves, uh, to find ourselves, those in Saturday and join us here. Not to minimize or deny the death, but for now just to sit with us, to share the burden, to weep and to mourn with us, to pray with us as we wait. To pray out and cry out to God for the death to stop and for the suffering to end, knowing full well that God is not a genie who grants every wish. So why do we pray? We pray because God did not promise an absence of suffering, but rather he promised that in our suffering, he is near. We pray and trust him because our savior knows what it's like to experience death. Jesus has joined himself to our suffering. We believe the Easter story takes place over three days for a reason because we will not find the true joy of Sunday until we have fully accepted the reality of the death, the silence and the waiting that comes on Saturday.
The Day of Contagious Joy, based on John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. On the third day, Sunday, Mary Magdalene woke up early in the morning, and she knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to honor the memory of Jesus. The burial preparations were left undone, and yesterday's Sabbath required her to stop all activity. So she got all the oils and the perfumes together, and she set off for the tomb where they buried Jesus. It was about 5 a.m., still dark, and no one was around. Mary made her way through the lonely street. The quiet gave her time to prepare her heart for what she would soon see. She would soon be handling the corpse of Jesus. With each step, Mary was preparing herself for that final preparation. It was her way of letting go and saying goodbye. Finally, she arrived at the tomb. The first thing she noticed was that the large stone that covered the entrance of the tomb had been rolled away. The tomb was open. Cautiously, she crept to the entrance and looked inside. The body of Jesus was gone. Someone has taken the body, she thought. Why? Who would do this? So she started to run. She ran to where Peter and John were staying. Without hesitation, she woke them up. Peter, John, they've taken Jesus out of the tomb. Who took him? Peter and John must have asked. How do you know this? Mary was unable to answer their questions. She could only share what she had seen. So now Peter and John started to run, and they ran back to the tomb with Mary following behind. John, who was younger and faster than Peter, gets there first, and it was exactly as Mary had said. The tomb was open, and the stone was rolled away. John stopped at the entrance and stooped down to peek in. The body of Jesus was gone. Strips of linen were lying on the floor. Then Peter arrived and, out of breath and gasping for air, walked right into the tomb. There he found a face cloth where Jesus' head was supposed to be. It was neatly folded up. Who would steal a body and then take time to fold the face cloth? John, perhaps, was the first to believe. In the gospel that he wrote, he said that he saw 
and that he believed. But Mary, Mary was bewildered and crushed. After the disciples left for home, Mary wouldn't leave the tomb. She had come to say goodbye, but instead of finding closure, she found an open tomb. Unsettled and disturbed, she stood right outside the tomb and did the only thing she could. She wept. And as she wept, she stooped to look once again back into the tomb, hoping to find something. And there, sitting where the body of Jesus was supposed to be, were two angels in white. Startled and shocked, she turned around and saw another man outside the tomb who she thought was the gardener. Whom are you looking for, he said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him. And the man she mistook for a gardener at that moment must have given her a smile. He said, Mary. And at that moment she knew it was him. It was him. He was alive. He had risen from the grave. So here we're at the last part of the story. And here we see Mary sad and in shock after the traumatic events of the past few days. The only thing she wants to do is to honor Jesus and bury him properly. But she sees that the body is gone and she's devastated. Everything has gone wrong and there's nothing left to do but cry. We've watched scenes like this in countless movies. In the movie Avengers Endgame, there's a scene where Captain America is the last man standing with his broken shield and he's facing thousands of enemy aliens. All is lost and everything seems hopeless. But then the music starts and plot twist, all the Avengers are back. The heroes save the day, good conquers evil, and then you go, oh my gosh, why was I ever worried? Like in the movies, this scene with the empty tomb is like the ultimate plot twist. When everything seems hopeless, we find an empty tomb, a pair of angels, and a risen savior. Wow, a powerful and expected ending changes the way we view the entire story and makes us want to experience it all over again. Now for me, I'm someone who has always struggled with worry and anxiety. I've often said that I wish I could live my life backwards because if I knew how my life would end, then I could enjoy the journey of living without fear and anxiety about the future. I don't think it's a coincidence that I was asked to share about this part of the Easter story. God clearly needed to remind me that I do know how my life will end because the end of this story is what defines it. I think you'd all agree when I say this past year has been unlike anything we've ever seen. We've experienced grief at the loss of family celebrations, the loss of day-to-day -day normalcy, and in some cases, the loss of people we love. And just when things seem like they might start to get better, 
we now see horrifying videos of vicious attacks on our elderly in the streets and hear of Asians losing their lives and the attacker being described as having a so-called bad day. It's starting to feel like nothing will ever be right again. And we can empathize with how Mary might have felt that morning. Absolutely hopeless. But we know how this story ends. And Mary's story is our story too. Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life with our Heavenly Father. So no matter how bleak and hopeless things look right now, we know how the story ends. And because of that, we can change how we live our lives. We don't have to let fear and anxiety overcome us because we know that ultimately the battle has already been won. Good has conquered evil and Jesus has conquered death. And because of that, we can live with incredible hope and contagious joy. He is risen. <clears throat> Thank you, Deanna. Hey, you know, it's Easter. We have to do this at least once where I say he is risen and you say he is risen indeed. And even though I can't hear you, I just will believe in faith that you're saying it, okay? Um, church family and friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, if there is one story that we wanted to tell you today, that's it. That's the story that we wanted to share. With. It's a story of hope. It's a story of power. It's a story of tremendous joy. It's a story with a plot twist and a really, really happy ending. It's a story that has given life and hope and meaning and joy to our own stories. When Jesus died, we died too. And when Jesus rose, we rose as well. And to all of our family and our friends who are joining us today, we just, we had to share the story with you because it's given us so much hope, so much joy. And we hope it will give your story hope and joy as well. And just as Deanna said, during this pandemic, we've seen like the worst display of humanity. I mean, it could be worse, but it's, it's, it's definitely enough to just break your heart. Please believe in the plot twist of Jesus Christ. <laughs> believe. It, it's not too good to be true. Just when all hope seemed lost, the hero came and saved the day. Good conquers evil. The ultimate villain, which is sin and death, are vanquished. And the ultimate plot twist is true. Let his story give yours hope and joy and meaning. Now, one final note. We have asked a few people what Easter means to them. And because the story of Jesus continues to give life and hope to all of our stories, here's what they had to share. Enjoy this video. Hi, this is Sean. Last December, I had a retinal detachment surgery. 
my left eye vision is greatly affected. As a result, my right eye vision is also affected from dryness due to overuse. Doctor told me it would take a year to heal, but the outcome is not guaranteed. The waiting for recovery and uncertainty caused me to have fear, anxiety, and depression. Yet, during this time, I realize how much God loves me. As I reflect on Easter, I am reminded that because of the resurrection of Christ, I have hope in Him and I can overcome suffering for His glory. Just like Romans 5.3-4 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So this is what Easter means to me. I find hope in the midst of pain and suffering. Easter means we have eternal life, despite the challenges in the pandemic. Now we all know that the pandemic is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. For me, Zoom is the hardest part. Knowing I have to click unmute to talk is kind of sad sometimes. But because Jesus died for us, and I know that you and I will have a good future, and that the pandemic will come to an end, I have confidence for the next day. I am reminded that I have eternal life, that is created to spread the word of God. And so, this is what Easter means to me. Hi CLC. When I was asked to film this video, I lay sleepless in my bed thinking about what to say. So during those hours, I opened up my Bible to Matthew 27 and 28 to read about Jesus' death and resurrection. Did you know that there are zombies in the Bible? Matthew 27 verses 52 through 53 say, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Jesus' death and resurrection has amazing power to give the dead new life. More specifically, he gives us new life. There is no fear in this new life because Jesus conquered death through his resurrection. And that is Easter. It is truly through his life and ascension into heaven that we are given new hope for our new life to come. Easter is a reminder of the greatest story ever told. And we are awakened from the dead. And that's what Easter means to me. New life. To me, Easter means freedom. It means freedom from things I have now died to. Sin, selfishness, having to worry about my needs, my wants, myself, and all the other things that I was a slave to. It means freedom to do what I know is good and right, but maybe didn't have the means to do before. It means freedom to selflessly love and serve others, to live in peace, to live with patience, goodness, and gentleness, to live a life worthy of and pleasing to Jesus. And so this is what Easter means to me. Freedom. Easter and the resurrection of Jesus is especially significant to me this year. I lost my mother and both my in-laws to COVID last year, but I'm reminded that I do not need to grieve like those with no hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So this separation with my loved ones is only temporary. So this is what Easter means to me. It's hope and joy 
even in a mist of sadness. All right, Bibi, why do we celebrate Easter? Because God's son rose from the dead. And why is that important? Because... We get to go to heaven and we, and we eat Satan, not lose Satan. Oh, good. So we don't lose to Satan and we don't lose to sin, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what Easter means to us. We have... Over sin and strife. Smash that like button, comment, and subscribe. Bye. Bye. Thanks for watching this video.